It's Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. On the show today, how can history benefit us in the current political moment? Presidential historian John Meacham speaks with John Dickerson of CBS News about how today's politicians can learn from yesterday's mistakes. History can't be a cultural Zoloft as much as we would like it to be. And it can't be a GPS because the circumstances, the political circumstances, change all the time. Meacham calls history a diagnostic tool the president, his staff, and members of Congress can use to navigate the future. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events held by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival, held in June 2017. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. John Meacham has written extensively about the presidency with books on Thomas Jefferson, Andrew Jackson, Franklin Roosevelt, and George H.W. Bush. He talks about all of these historical figures and John F. Kennedy. He says Kennedy looked at the past when making decisions during the Cuban Missile Crisis. He was determined not to rush to war, says Meacham, like others had before him. His decision changed the course of policy and history. Our current political time looks most like the 1930s, says Meacham. With one of every four American men out of work, populist groups on the right and left were on the rise during the Depression. Just like now, citizens were questioning democratic capitalism. We came out of that thanks to President Roosevelt. How will the outcome look today with President Trump at the helm? Here's Meacham and John Dickerson. Dickerson begins the conversation. I mean, we're going to start with Andrew Jackson, um, because this All good mornings start with know. Andrew Jackson. Can you imagine the Aspen Ideas Festival of 1829? Is the typewriter scalable? It would have been, oh, I know, trains, the environmental impact. Um, investing, in, investing in our children. Um, yeah, no, uh, you know, Andrew Jackson, formidable figure. He once said his only two regrets in public life were that he had not shot Henry Clay and hung John C. Calhoun, who was his vice president. Um, no one felt that way about their running mate until John McCain. So, it was <laughs> big moment. Um, but you were with the president talking about Andrew Jackson. I was. In the uh, Oval Office. Yeah, um, and this was right after he'd gone to visit him on his trip down you know, when he was in Tennessee. Um, start us there. I don't think they had a conversation, but just... I know, you, I know you're a TV Given guy. Given the but. historical appropriation of, um, <laughs> right. uh, I mean, because, um, uh, Booker, well, anyway, we'll, we'll, we won't make that joke. Um, so the president has embraced Andrew Jackson because he said he was an anti-elitist. Yeah. Uh, the, the Washington swells were terrified by him. They yep. said he represented the mob. Uh, and so the president has embraced all of this. So is he right to do that? He has. Well, I think it's more accurate to say that Steve Bannon has embraced all of this. Um, and I don't say that to be flip, but uh, I spent about an hour and a half with Trump in last May, almost exactly a year ago, uh, for time, talking about predecessors, analogies, what was he thinking about historically preparing for the campaign in the office? It was a short <laughs> interview. Uh, but, um, uh, and Jackson never came up. Uh, in fact, the only president who came up was Reagan, and that was very tangential. Um, so Bannon introduced the Jackson analogy into the conversation right after the election. And it's a perfectly usable analogy. My own view is that it's actually fun to 
see where presidents talk about their predecessors because almost always they see as they wish to be seen. Uh, when John Kennedy said to the Nobel Prize winners, this is the greatest gathering of talent in the White House with the possible exception of when Thomas Jefferson dined alone. Uh, what he kind of was doing was saying, you know, aren't I kind of Jeffersonian? You know, here I am, a Pulitzer Prize winning author and a cultural figure, and we have you know, culture in the White House. Um, and so they, they're seeking sanction, they're seeking inspiration. And so it's a, it's a useful one. Uh, my own view is that uh, Jackson, for all his vices, by the time he came to the presidency in 1829, he had been a prosecutor, the first congressman from Tennessee, a senator, a judge, God help us, uh, uh, a uh, general, had run for president twice. And he knew that his temperament was a source of anxiety and concern for others. He used that to his advantage as a negotiating tactic. Uh, he, was con he convinced South Carolina, uh, which as ever was causing problems, uh, in 1832-33 that he was going to march into the state and that put them on the defensive. So my, my own view is that Jackson was a chess player and it's very hard to imagine the incumbent playing chess, I'm, I, I must say. I'm gonna tell you one quick story about, um, about that. So Jackson, uh, Trump came to Nashville where I live uh, on March 15th, the 250th anniversary of Jackson's birth to lay a wreath and give a talk and really try to make this, make this analogy even clearer. And I wrote an open letter to the president uh, in, the, in the local paper saying what I just said. If you're going to embrace Jackson, sir, embrace him not just for the king mob elements but the sophisticated uh, tactical strategic nature of Jackson. And uh, it had no effect, of course. Uh, but uh, it went out on what we call the interweb and um, the next day, my phone rang as I was walking into a lunch, and it was my most recent subject, George H.W. Bush, uh, who was calling from the hospital uh, in Houston, and he clearly had a lot of free time because he'd read this. And uh, so I answered the phone, and he says, I read your letter to Jackson. Doing an H.W. Bush, by the way, is, as Dana Carvey says, Mr. Rogers trying to be John Wayne. That's, that's the um, and I read your letter to Jackson. And I was thinking, you know, here I am. I, I said, that's, it's fine for him to say that to me, but he's 90, he turned 93 last week. He's been sick. You know, what if he says to someone else, I read this letter to Jackson. You know, is, maybe the old man's missing a step. So I said, that's great, Mr. President. It's great to hear from you. Um, you know, actually, it was to Trump, not, not Jackson. He said, yeah, but Jackson will pay more attention. <laughs> he's just fine. He's still, yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, it's true. No president says, you know, Buchanan and I, you know, they don't, they always pick the winners. Um, yeah. Uh, but let's, let's step out of the um, current occupant, uh, if we can, a little bit and, and say, because sometimes presidents, it seems to me, they use their predecessors sort of as a user's manual. I mean, there's not a lot of ways to, uh, and, and how can they use it effectively uh, and not, as you say, which is basically seeking sanction through history right. to do what they already wanted to do. Right. Well, you know, it's, it's like the old, uh, in, the old Jeff, Jefferson Hamilton insight, which is that everyone's against executive power until they have it. Um, and so they're, they're creatures of circumstance. Um, 
you know, we all wouldn't be here, I think, or many of us would not be here, and certainly the order of life that, would, that brought us here this morning would be different if John Kennedy hadn't known a lot of history. Because in October 1962, when he received the photographic evidence of uh, nuclear missiles being put in Cuba, and the first thing he said wonderfully self-referentially was, he can't do this to me. Uh, uh, so if we think that narcissism is a new thing, you know, as, as Mark Twain said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. Um, and uh, Bobby Kennedy just was, very, was much more elemental. He just said, shit, 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 uh, which is actually a pretty sound reaction. Um, uh, but if he hadn't done two things, um, he'd learned from the Bay of Pigs. Uh, you know, the Kennedys came to Washington really thinking they were Ian Fleming. Uh, they, were, they, they disdained Eisenhower. Kennedy used to call Eisenhower that old asshole. Um, uh, disdaining the national security, planning the bureaucracy. They thought that uh, Eisenhower had been overly cautious. Uh, and so as the Bay of Pigs is planned, they do it with the CIA, they do it with the military. No one ever has a full meeting. There's never a meeting about the Bay of Pigs in the way we would think of it. And of course, it's a disaster. Kennedy says, in a parliamentary system, I would resign. Um, and so he did something that I think is one of the really, sort of a quiet but great moment in the history of the presidency and of the country in the 20th century. He reaches out to the one, one of the most important people on the planet before whom he had no desire to admit any weakness. And that was Eisenhower. He calls Eisenhower, he asks him to come to Camp David. They go into Aspen, uh, the cabin there. And Kennedy says, I, I don't know what happened. And Eisenhower asked him a couple of leading questions about, you know, if you don't have everyone in the room at the same time going through options, you're not going to get to the right result. And Kennedy says, I get it, essentially. And so then I know there are people in the room who think they have been part of the longest committee meeting in history. Uh, but the longest committee meeting in history was XCOM, uh, 13 days in October of 62. Kennedy had learned from his own history he also had uh, in his mind uh, two books. Uh, Basil Little Hart, the British military strategist. He, he had Kennedy had written a book review, or had published a book review, of, um, of Hart's book in September 1960, right at the beginning of the campaign. It was called Deterrent or Defense. And there was an observation in it about, in a crisis, keep cool, put yourself in the other man's shoes, you know, never over, you know, always give your opponent a way out. So that was in his head as he dealt with Khrushchev, and it was in the Saturday Review in, in that fall. And the other book he'd read was The Guns of August. And Tuckman's thesis, now under assault by scholars, but was her thesis, and, and a prevalent one at the time, was that the Great War had come about because of a series of miscalculations. And Kennedy was determined in real time that he was not going to have a rush to war like that. And so that's a case where knowing a good bit of history, your own and that of the world, had a discernible, detectable effect on the course of policy. And yet future presidents continue to repeat a version of his first mistake, which Richard Neustadt wrote him about, which is yeah. you come into the office yeah. and you think, I just won this election. Yeah. I know how to handle this. Yeah. I don't need to listen to Eisenhower. I don't, I'm going to rewire this, yeah. this office. Um, and they all continue to make that mistake. They all come in and think that's the history they should read so they don't have to discover two years in, you know, I should read some history because this office, it turns out, is more complicated than I thought. 
it is like Lucy in the football, right? Um, it's also, I sometimes think of it as the Miranda principle from The Tempest, oh, brave new world that has such people in it. And then her father says, tis new to thee. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, no, it, it, it always, you know, history always tames people. Uh, it's immense, you know, it's so immensely complicated. It's, 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 I know President Trump has announced that the Middle East thing is not that hard. But, um, you know, where's Haas? Haas yeah. is back. There he is, yeah. If only you'd known that, man. Right. Um, what's wrong with you? Yeah. Um, uh, so I, I, I think that if you're looking at presidential characteristics, which I think we should, because I think the Greeks were right, character's destiny, and ultimately, the ins- there are people here, Ambassador Edelman's here, Richard's here, you all know this, an administration tends to take on the coloration of the character of the leader. Mm-hmm. It sort of can't be any other way. And so therefore, the temperament of the leader matters enormously. And I think sometimes people, uh, you know, common cause or, or sort of tote bag people think that, we, you know, we spend too much time on character and personality and all that. But you know, at the end of the day, what mattered uh, with Kennedy, to go back to that example, was his character. His, he was cool, he was ironic, he didn't trust the, you know, his, his great line to Ben Bradley was, the great thing about being a general is if we fu- do what they say, no one will be around to tell them they were wrong. We're reaching way back into the Aspen Ideas To Go archives to find your next great listening experience. Check out the episode, Finding Meaning in Your Work. The average American spends one-third of their life working. What's the secret to achieving happiness because of work and not in spite of it? Author David Brooks is a featured speaker. When we get married, we have a ceremony at a church or synagogue or mosque or something, and we make sacred vows. We should have a marriage ceremony for evocation. Uh, and so are you like self-conscious saying, okay, this is going to be something I'm really going to pour my love into. He speaks with economist Arthur Brooks about how to incorporate meaning into an eight-hour shift or a long night at the office. Find the episode by searching Aspen Ideas To Go on your podcast player. You can also find a link in our show notes. Back to the episode. Here's John Dickerson. Is character, because we, we always do come back to character with, the, with these presidents, but what does that really mean and does it, can we take it all the way, just covering the people you've written about, can you take it from Jefferson always, uh, all the way to George Herbert Walker Bush? I mean, so in other words, is it basically that the, the final decision is the lonely one by the president? Yeah. And, it, and what is, does character mean basically they have a structure given to them by whatever, experience, faith in God, um, that they then rely on that more often than not leads to better decisions. What is it, when, what do we mean when we mean character? Because this gets us to our larger question about history, because the character traits of Jefferson really matter, you know, 200 years later? Uh, and oh, if so, sure, sure, they do. Uh, I mean, Jefferson's case, uh, I mean, again, we wouldn't be here it, but for Jefferson's temperament. Uh, exactly. I'm not good at math, but this time in 1776, he was sitting in Philadelphia writing the Declaration, the most famous press release in American history, uh, world history. Uh, And the reason he was able to sit down and write that was he and his cohort had been conversant with, had been curious enough about the broad intellectual, cultural, economic currents 
of the Western world of the previous two or three centuries. So if you think about what was going on in the world prior to 1776, you have the rise of the bourgeoisie, Gutenberg, uh, the Protestant Reformations, and it, an entire shift in the organization of the world from being vertical, princes, prelates, popes, kings, uh, inherited authority, autocracy, that people who by either accident of birth or incident of election had power over the destinies of others to a more horizontal understanding in which actually everyone, at least white men at that point, were born with the capacity to play out that destiny. Jefferson, when he wrote arguably the most important sentence in the English language, that we're all created equal and are all endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights, a sentence that resonates unto this hour, he wasn't writing that in a vacuum. He was writing that because he had been at William and Mary with a, uh, William, a professor whose name is lost to history named William Small, who was the conduit of the Scottish and European Enlightenment mm -hmm. into, the, into Virginia at that time. And he was able to distill those ideas in a way that someone else couldn't have done. That was his character. That was his disposition. He grew up as a bright young undergraduate. There are probably a few former bright young undergraduates here who very much wanted to impress his elders. He did it by immersing himself in that scholarship. That character, that desire to please led to, I think, the declaration. Uh, in terms of power, he was ultimately pragmatic. Jefferson wanted to be seen as the philosopher, not even really as a philosopher king. I think one of the great passive aggressive moments in the writing of epitaphs ever was when he said uh, that the three things on the tombstone at Monticello, as you know, founder of the University of Virginia, author of the Virginia Statute for Religious Liberty, and author of the Declaration of Independence, thereby guaranteeing that everyone in perpetuity would stand there and say how humble he was he didn't mention he was president. Guaranteeing that people would say that. Uh, I've been trying to work that out in my own mind, what mine will be. Um, and so, although, frankly, starting with the University of Virginia is the right way to go. Well, we call that the, that's true, it's true, it's a land-grant school. Um, <laughs> we think of it in my part of the world as the Sewanee of uh, the Mid-Atlantic, uh, but my alma mater is best understood as a combination of Downton Abbey and Deliverance. Uh, but um, anyway. And Jackson's character mattered immensely. Jackson's the first, Henry Clay's phrase basically, self-made man, yeah. the first non-Virginia planter or non-Adams to become president. Uh, Lincoln's careful, tragic nature mattered. Yeah. Wilson's Presbyterianism mattered. FDR's uh, capacity, as he once put it, I'm a juggler, I never let my left hand know what my right hand is doing, mattered enormously. Although in that case, let's stick with FDR for a second. People yeah. would not associate that with character, which is, um, I mean, FDR's letting, you know, and Clinton was accused of this, but without the same success that people attribute to FDR. But FDR, you would come into the room and I'd say, yes, yes, yes. And then your opponent would come in and I'd say, yes, yes, yes. And then right. not, both of you thought that I was agreeing with you, which is an act of duplicity, essentially. And yet right. some people say, that's his genius. So is that character? Sure, it's character. I mean, it's, it's I mean, I don't know. I, how many politicians do you all know who like saying no? I don't know any. Right. Uh, the political, I mean, what, what is a, what's a politician's unit of commerce? It's affection, respect, and vote, right? He wants to create, he or she wants to create an atmosphere of affection. I once had a professor who defined charm as the capacity to make other people love you without quite knowing why. 
pretty good definition. That's what a politician does. If I want your vote, if I want your money, and I certainly want your ideas, um, <clears throat> then I want to create the sense that there's a special bond, right. and then I want that to be, to be manifest in a vote or a check. And so their world is not one in which their ambient reality is not conflict. It's, it's, it's actually, it's creating a sense, an illusion of, uh, of grace and affection. And is that character? Sure, that's character. Character doesn't have to be good. I mean, without, I mean, I wouldn't want to have been married to Franklin Roosevelt, uh, but you know, the same characteristics that enabled him to conceal an affair from 1914 to 1918 and then basically on and off from 1918 until the day he died in April of 1945 was the same set of characteristics that enabled him to, by hook and by crook, manage the nation into intervening in the great global struggle, the defining global struggle of our time. He deceived Mrs. Roosevelt to get what he wanted. In many ways, he deceived and played to isolationist sentiment in the country, but he got us where we needed to go. So, again, what makes you a wonderful person may not make you a wonderful political leader. Right. But this is not, you know, it's not a YMCA camp we're talking about. Because some people have uh, characterized the pre sitting president as being deceptive, sometimes not strictly speaking, telling the truth. Um, I haven't so, noticed that. Is that so, true? so you've just so that's a good characteristic then. Well, it can be. It hasn't yet. Uh, <laughs> it's been good for your ratings, uh, which is good. Um, you become the Roger Mudd of our generation. I appreciate that. Uh, I mean, you know, Dickerson's the guy who got Trump to say, "I don't stand by anything," which is, in fact, the key line of the of the era. Uh, so, um, so me... you're, you're Edward R. Murrow, man. <laughs> This is London. Yes. Um, uh, <laughs> if only your sense of history were as Play Mono at breakfast and it's only a good day. Yeah. <laughs> um, but what I'm trying to get at here is the idea we think of uh, Abraham Lincoln as honest Abe. You think of the apocryphal story of George Washington in chopping down the... In the if you wanted habeas corpus, you wouldn't think of him as honest. Right. You? Well, I guess, so my point is here, in terms of history... What do we? What what it seems to me we need to know is not the the the, the lovely stories of the cherry tree and the honest Abe. You yeah. need to know what you're talking about yeah. here, which is these that character is not a universally. Uh, I'm not sure you would raise your children with the character traits that you need for, to for the presidency. Oh, that's absolutely true. I mean, if you're raising normal children, give it up. They'll never be successful politically. Uh, Oh, I think that's absolutely true. As a uh, father of two children, raising normal children, give it up, is just basically my it, motto. It, it's good. No, it, in fact, you have a coffee mug, don't you? Yes, exactly. um, no, it, there's a great, I, I had this conversation with President Obama once and Senator McCain uh, back in 08, and it's, to me, it's sort of riveting. Uh, we'll see if you find it riveting. Um, which is that there's a certain presidential type in terms of their relationship with their fathers. <laughs> Presidents tend tend to either have a dominant, enveloping father or no father at all. There's almost no temperate median. We have an unusual number, of, at least to my mind, a higher proportion of presidents who never knew their father. Andrew Jackson's father died before he was born. His pallbearers lost his coffin because they were drinking Old Crow on the way to the... <laughs> Again, we just call that the mortuary sciences, where I come from. Um, <laughs> Jackson didn't know his father. Bill Clinton didn't know his father. Gerald Ford didn't know his father. Two of our recent presidents 
their names are not their names, right? Bill Clinton was born William Blythe. Gerald Ford was born Leslie Lynch King Jr. There's a Jeopardy one for you for later. Um, which is kind of, I don't know how many people that's true of here, but I suspect not many. Um, George Bush, uh, Prescott Bush for 41, 41 for 43, dominant figure. Jack Kennedy, dominant figure. Lyndon Johnson, a pretty dominant figure, although his father became weak at the end, was, was not particularly uh, happy with the way his life turned out, and that was part of what drove, right. drove Johnson. Well, and he had a heck of a mother, too. But yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, we, the mothers we can talk about. Uh, we don't have an extra 50 minutes, and you, I'm not going to pay you for that. Uh, but I think the, um, Senator McCain had, you know, Admiral McCain was an was a, a important figure. As I recall, President Obama actually only met his father once. I think I'm right about that, when he was 11. There's an amazing picture taken at the Honolulu airport behind one of those old Delta signs. It must have been 1969, 70 or so. Uh, maybe a little, maybe, maybe 68. And he's holding on, and Obama's a little, a little chunkier then, and he's holding on to his father just for dear life. It's a riveting picture. And the father disappears again. The father went to Harvard instead of staying with his family. He had, a, he, had a, he had the ability to, I can't remember exactly where, but he had the ability to take, get his PhD someplace, I think it was Columbia, where he would have enough money to support the family, or he could go to Harvard and just support himself, and he went to Harvard. And so President Obama said, and I think using a, a, a phrase he picked up somewhere else, that a man is always either trying to live up to his father's expectations or make up for his father's mistakes. And in his case, he was doing a little bit of both. President Trump, I think it's still true. It was true when and the only picture he had for a long time on the desk behind the Resolute desk was of his father. Was of his father. Yeah. yeah. And it's just, you know, it's, you know, when I talked to 41, I interviewed President Bush Sr. for nine or 10 years for this book I did a couple years ago. And whenever Senator Bush came up, Prescott Bush, best golfer in the Senate, Eisenhower loved playing with him. Um, I would say, talk about your dad. And he said, tall, scary. Um, and <laughs> Mrs. Bush, there's a great Mrs. Bush story. Uh, George W., as a young man, I know this is hard to believe, had done something mischief mischievous and um, <laughs> stunning, I know. Uh, he'd broken a vase or something. And uh, Senator Bush is really letting him have it. And Mrs. Bush is about to turn on the landing on the stairs, and she thinks, uh, he can deal with it himself and hides from Senator Bush. Uh, so um, uh, Barbara Bush, I should say, she just had a birthday. She's 92 now, President Bush 93. And one of the, one of the things that's going to be tricky for what we do going forward is the lack of diaries and real letters. Um, in a way, we're going to be overwhelmed with emails and that sort of thing and trying to figure out um, how things happen then. But Mrs. Bush has kept a diary every day since 1948. Uh, so at some point today in Maine, she sat down to write, write something down. And when I found out about it, I asked if I could read it. And that, the answer was no. Uh, and so I did what all great historians do. I begged. Uh, and she, she relented. And uh, one of my favorite moments of the whole project was when I told Bush 43 that I was reading his mother's diary. He said, she, she gave you what? 
that is not good news for me. <laughs> and now, and now we have tweets that you'll be uh, working well, on. Well, the tweets are riveting, right? Um, they're like having a pair of X-ray glasses. Uh, so that'll be fascinating. Um, I just don't know. I mean, you, let me ask you this. I mean, there's always drama we don't see. How much drama could there be that we don't see, given that there is all the drama that we do see at the moment? Well, that uh, is a nice transition. Thank you for this. Um, I think we're seeing, uh, I think it was Al Gore who, I think he told Bob Woodward this at one point, and this may say something more about the Clinton administration, but that even when you're in an administration, sometimes you only know 5% of what's going on. Yeah. Um, and so this is a question for you as a historian, because the journalists necessarily are going to miss what's going on. Now, what you have in this White House, which is different, the, the, in the Clinton White House, it was quite leaky. So you get a lot of information, yeah. but some large percentage of it was wrong or bad, or the person who was leaking had a secondary agenda. Now you have that times 10. So you see a lot, but you don't really know what you're seeing because you don't know which part of the elephant it's an iceberg, you're right? getting a piece of. Right, or it's the elephant. You're getting the person describing the fight over the, the, you know, the front of the elephant, but the real action is happening. I don't the like rear. using the elephant. Um, I don't like using the elephant with Clinton the, for various reasons. Uh, oh, I was moving on to Trump there at that oh, point. Sorry. But anyway, um, so, but the question then for you is about, um, regardless of the administration, we are going to get it wrong as journalists in the moment. Um, and so the perspective that you get uh, from history, I mean, one of the things I want to move into now is the benefit of history in our yeah. current moment to kind of either settle people down, right. on the one hand say, look, you know, this is not 1968. <clears throat> there are not tanks in the streets. On the other hand, history says, hey, this little thing you're seeing now, it will go from here to there. We have seen it happen before. So yeah. uh, don't take this lightly. Um, where do you, are, are both of those things true, or do you uh, weight one of the two more than another? Uh, you know, as, as Philip Graham said, journalism is the first rough draft of history. And every once in a while, when we used to get something wrong, Mrs. Graham would say, does it have to be so goddamn rough yeah. uh, every time? Um, it is, I, I think history, history can't be a cultural Zoloft, as much as we would like it to be. And it can't be a GPS, because if you type in the coordinates, you think, you know, if you're Mitch McConnell today, and which I don't wish on, on, on him, but, uh, uh, and you're thinking, all right, how do I pass this, this bill? You can't think, all right, I'm going to type in how FDR passed Social Security or how Reagan did Social Security reform or whatever it is. Um, because the circumstances, the political circumstances, change all the time. There are certain realities. There are certain uh, fundamental uh, forces that are always in play, but every tends to be every situation is different enough. I think it's a matter, it's a diagnostic tool that certain symptoms recur. It's likely that if you find this symptom and that symptom, it's likely that that's going to be the result. And so, but you have to make the judgment based on that particular patient to torture that metaphor. I, I apologize. Um, to me, it's about proportion. Uh, so should you set your hair on fire because of a given tweet from the incumbent president? Probably not. But at the same time, the danger of my view, and I'm aware of this, is just because something has happened in the past doesn't mean it's not happening now. 
And so knowing too much history can, to some extent, make you a little too cynical. You can be a little too glib about what I, I just, I made a you know, passing remark a minute ago about habeas corpus. All right, the incumbent has not done what Abraham Lincoln did. Uh, he hasn't done what Franklin Roosevelt did with the Japanese Americans. Uh, but that doesn't mean he won't. And so you have to be persistently and consistently aware. My own view at the moment is that if you're looking for the most analogous time, I think it's the 1930s in the United States. Uh, 1932, summer of 32, Franklin Roosevelt said to, um, I think it was Ray Moley uh, or Sam Rosenman, said that the two most dangerous men in America were Douglas MacArthur and Huey Long because MacArthur could lead a populist revolt from the right and Huey Long could lead run from the left. And you had a moment where because of what was going on in Germany and Italy, because of what was going on in, in, in the Soviet Union, it was a genuine moment because of the depression, because of the global depression, in which democratic capitalism was in the dock. Remember, Anne Morrow Lindbergh wrote one of the most popular books of the decade, which was called The Wave of the Future. And the wave of the future was European-style totalitarianism, not democratic capitalism. So it was a genuine moment uh, where we were reassessing whether the institutions and the systems could deliver for enough people to create political stability. We came out of that. It took a long time. It took a masterful leader in President Roosevelt. Uh, but it was a near-run thing. There were armed bands roaming through Sioux City. Uh, there was, a, you know, again, one out of every four American men were out of work. Um, I, but I do think we're in the same kind of questioning phase where an enormous number of people do not believe that the system itself is repaying its part of the covenant. I think there are two reasons Trump is president, among others, but um, there are two numbers. One is 17%. 17%, according to Pew, is the number, percentage of Americans who have faith in the federal government to do the right thing some or most of the time. 17. That's down from 77% in 1965. Okay, so we've gone from three out of four to fewer than one in five. The other is 130,000. That's the number that the White House in 2010 estimated was a required household income for an American family of four to have a uh, standard post-World War II middle-class life, $130,000. Household income for a family of four is $57,500. If you're looking for the gasoline on the floor, of which Trump was the match, is people don't trust Washington and they're $70,000 or more away from being able to have a car for every grown-up, go on vacation, save a little bit of money, make their kids' lives a little better than their own. That broken promise at the heart of the American experience right now is the reason we have this president. Thanks for listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. The producers of our sister podcast, Aspen Insight, just dropped their latest episode. It's called This Land is Our Land. It features a conversation between two former congressmen about how they worked across the aisle. How can that sense of unity be applied in today's Washington? And Native American youth are working to make their communities healthier. Mariah Gladstone of Montana's Blackfeet tribe started her own Indigi Kitchen cooking show. 
It is not a Martha Stewart thing. I don't even have to put up makeup to do them, which is great. Um, but it's, it's really cool because people are able to see something happen in less than two minutes. They realize that it's actually a very simple process to make a lot of this stuff. She hopes the show gets people to trade junk food for traditional food that's grown nearby. Find the episode by searching Aspen Insight in your favorite podcast player. Here's the rest of today's show. John Dickerson. So the last question before it's we... It's like move. the Oval Office. <laughs> uh, no, he told us there were no tapes. Um, Did you feel taped when you were in there? Well, there were two running cameras at the time. So... Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, the... Um, well, I want to ask, may I ask you a question? Sure. So I'm serious about this Roger Mudd moment. Can you tell us in, in capsule form the story of your interview with the president in which he ran away from you? Um, <laughs> I mean, you would have thought, you were, you would have thought, to that you would have thought that you know, Dickerson was Trump and, and Trump was you know, a star from The Guiding Light. Well, Good. I don't Good. associate myself with any of your remarks. In this <laughs> um, well, you know, uh, you were not far from uh, you. You and I had talked about Jackson and the president. That's right. Before uh, it's, we're in the Oval Office, Jackson's uh, painting is on the wall, um, and the conversation was about that, which was about the size of the office, the weight of the office. He just uh, taken action against Syrian use of chemical weapons. We talked about George W. Bush's quote that the Oval Office doesn't have any corners that you can hide in. Um, but then we got into a conversation. So in that context, and in the very context we've been talking about this morning, which is where do you as a president seek guidance? If, if, if history is a user's manual, we've got a couple authors of those user's manuals still alive. And so the natural evolution of the conversation was do you talk to President Obama, who you had promised to talk to, um, when you came into office and said several times, I'm going to seek his counsel. So I asked him, particularly on these decisions where there are only a few people alive who've had to send missiles uh, into uh, populated areas, uh, if he spoke to the president. He said he didn't because the president started out with nice words but then had taken bad actions. So I just was asking him about that. It led to a conversation about his claim the president had taped him or wiretapped Trump Tower, which had by that time been discredited by the then head of the FBI, James Comey, uh, the head of, former head of the Director of National Intelligence, former head of the CIA, um, both the ranking members of the House and Senate Intelligence Committees. Um, anyway, and it was in a conversation about that and, and if he still stood up or still stood by that, that, um, that claim that we got into a, uh, a back and forth and ultimately he just decided he didn't want to answer anymore. So that was, and then you're standing in the Oval Office and he's moved on and then you're just sort of standing there. And I guess you're, you so just kind of show yourself out. You know? Is that what you did? So that's right. Yeah, yeah. You Which is amazing that? because there are these ushers in the White House where if you go to a social event there, when it's time to go, um, it's like if you ever were uh, taught by the nuns. A, a hand appears at your back and yeah. you are piloted towards the exit in yeah. a way that is both comforting and um, forceful, and, and you know you're not supposed to stay. There was no hand at my back, but it was pretty obvious. Pretty obvious was, you were uh, supposed to go. Yeah. I was supposed to go, so um, uh, that was it. Um, and uh, well, you did. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to flatter John, because I believe, it, as, as Dr. Kissinger would say, it has the virtue of being true. Um, it's very difficult 
and there are people in the room who spent a lot of time doing this, it's very difficult to stand in the Oval Office, very difficult to stand in front of a president or a presidential candidate even, and actually say to that person what you've said in your mind or to your friends what you're going to say to them. Uh, George W. used to say, you know, they always sit, on, sit out in the waiting room and say that they're going to come in there and tell me what all. And uh, they get in there and say, oh, what a lovely time, Mr. President. Um, <laughs> But it's very hard to do what John did, uh, to stand there and just continue to pursue a line of, of questioning in that setting, in that moment. And you did a wonderful job. Uh, and so thank you. Wow. Thank you. <laughs> now, I'm a, now I'm going to associate myself with your remarks. Um, who has a question so we can move on from this moment? Uh, here we go, this question. I here, thought it was a good moment. I'm very grateful. The, the um, mic is coming. Hello. And I have a question about looking back at history and something the Democrats need to do in redefining what their role is in, in the political party system. How can they go back and look and use some of the lessons that they've had and there has been in history and then within the context of the current environment that we have today, redefine their role and make them more relevant in, in, today, in today's society? It's a great question. And I think a lot of the Democrats would, would take the opposite view of, of what I'm about to say, which is what makes it such a conundrum. But the, the two occasions in the past half century where the Democratic Party has essentially reinvented itself and won has been moments where it has broken from what was seen as liberal, New Deal, great society, progressivism, and moved more toward the center. Now, there are many people probably in this room who would say that's exactly the wrong thing. That's what Secretary Clinton tried to do, and look what happened. And if only we just took the message to the people the, in a Bernie Sanders way, then we would win. That may be true, but if you're going to look at the, his, the historical record, Lyndon Johnson wins the largest landslide at that point mathematically in American history in 1964. He got exactly a thousand days. It's actually a fascinating little historical thing. The, the same amount of time that President Kennedy had in office was basically the high water mark of the Johnson years. So when we think there was this long period of liberal consensus, no, there wasn't. What happened in 1966? The Republicans won more than 40 seats in the House, and Ronald Reagan became governor of California. There was an immediate reaction to the 1964 election. Scotty Reston wrote on the front page of the New York Times the day after the election in 1964 that conservatism was dead for a generation in the United States. Scotty Reston had a lot of great moments. That wasn't one of them. Um, so when did the Democrats win again? Was with a Southern governor from Georgia in 1976. And he barely won. A few more votes in Southern Ohio and Gerald Ford becomes president and probably Ronald Reagan's never president. Um, so the whole, and then George Bush and George Bush are never president. So these things switch. President Ford always thought actually that um, and would say privately that if Reagan had been more willing to campaign for him in Ohio uh, after their contentious primary, the last really truly great convention was Kansas City in 76, that he would have won. And then the entire recent history of the presidency would be entirely different. Both Bushes have admitted to me that if Bush had not gotten that call in, on, the, on the penultimate night of the convention in 1980 in Detroit, uh, at 11.32 p.m. is when Reagan called Bush to offer him the vice presidency because the talks with Ford had fallen apart finally. And uh, 
both have said that if Bush had not become vice president in 1980, then neither of them would have been president. So one of the great things about history is how contingent it is. Um, so Carter runs as a centrist, basically. Uh, we forget that uh, because of his post-presidential activity, but he did. He wins in 76, he loses again. And then the, the rethinking and the repositioning of the Democratic Party leading to 1992. Um, 1985 is an enormously important year in modern times on this because that was the year that Al Fromm founds the Democratic Leadership Council. And it took a while, uh, but it only took one extra cycle, presidential cycle, for Clinton to win. Um, now, President Obama, I would argue, Senator Obama, remember, in 2008, ran much more as a centrist figure than a progressive figure. He was not for same-sex marriage. He was not, as I recall, for a mandate uh, in the healthcare. Um, and he was very careful, as we all know, never to appear overly passionate, overly uh, uh, aggressive for various reasons we can all put in our minds. So um, the, the argument would be to reconfigure and run to the middle. And I know that most of the conversation is that that's a disastrous idea. But if you're looking at the post-war history of Democrats who won, those are the, that, that, that would be where history would lead you. Just a plug for your book on George Herbert Walker Bush. The scene that you paint of Reagan with Ford and then Bush getting that phone call is one of the many great scenes in that book. I associate myself with yeah. that remark. Um, uh, where? Over here. And by the way, on our character point, Jimmy Carter, I will never lie to you, right? right. So. I suppose it's good form to stand. Uh, I'm curious about the Republican Party, historically. My, my understanding, and it may be wrong, and I wanted you to correct it, is that they were a moderate party 50 or 60 years ago. And I'd like to know what happened to them. I don't think you could be moderate and be a, a, Republic, a successful Republican candidate. And it's frightening to me because I think it's more than anything that they're the cause of polarization between the two parties and the, and the people in the country. And I happen to be a registered Republican, but I would never vote for one under the current circumstances. Where do you live, sir? I live in Florida. And um, so I'm wondering historically if you can uh, give us a little background in what's sure. happened to that party over these last half century. Sure, uh, quickly. Um, Modern movement conservatism, which has now basically taken over the party, although it's very hard to figure out right now how much of Trump is the base and how much, you know, my own view of Trump for a while was that uh, it was the first case of a hijacker boarding a plane and the passenger sided with the hijacker uh, when he took the party. So there's that. Um, so I don't really know uh, how much of that's going on. Although given the way senators, Republican senators, many of whom are essentially sensible people, are acting, they don't know the answer to this either. I had a um, uh, conference eight days before the Tennessee primary uh, in the t 2016. I had a conversation with a very high-ranking elected official in my home state in Tennessee who said that he didn't know anyone who was for Trump. Trump won with 63% of the vote. So if you're looking for a problem, that's one of, and the governor of, uh, a governor of a neighboring state told me in the same season that there were precincts in his state 
that in 2008, 2012, in the Republican presidential primary, had had maybe 100, 110 voters that were turning out 1,200, 1,300 voters. People were coming out of the hills, and he didn't know who they were. Mm -hmm. um, so there's, what's happening with the base right now is tricky. But quickly, the, re the reason we, how, it's to my mind, how, how the, the, the history of modern republicanism is this is all founded in reaction to Dwight Eisenhower. Uh, President Eisenhower, who breaks the 20 years, imagine that, 20 year lock of democratic power from 1932 to 1952. Uh, Bill Rusher, who was the publisher of National Review, said that movement conservatism grew out of the realization that Eisenhower was not gonna undo the New Deal. He wasn't going to take apart Social Security. And in fact, President Eisenhower said, any party that tries to undo what Franklin Roosevelt did will be a party that is doomed to extinction. And so that's 1952, he becomes president in 53. What happens in 1955? Bill Buckley founds National Review. If you have a moment today, go Google, Google up, as my, ch my children say, Google up Bill Buckley's founding editorial for National Review. It's riveting. He says that conservatives are out in the sense that the New York Times, Henry Steele Commager, the League of Women Voters are in. And you know, Buckley was a complicated, wonderful, interesting man and thoughtful, thoughtful, thoughtful. But basically the sense of reaction, the sense of being under siege culturally was driving a large part of, of, of National Review. Charter subscriber was the spokesman for General Electric, mm -hmm. named Ronald Reagan. Um, and so those ideas were, were, were percolating. Um, Lionel Trilling in the 1950s in his book, The Liberal Imagination, said that American conservatism was not a coherent philosophy, it was a series of irritable mental gestures. <laughs> so that gives you some sense of the liberal sense of, of what, um, what they made of, of, of the right. Um, so I think that as, by 1980, uh, I mean, the Republican platform, I think for 40 years, or at least certainly 30 plus, endorsed the Equal Rights Amendment and did not, and as, as, as recently as 1976 did. 1980, there was still a significant enough moderate Republican faction that Reagan was reaching out to either Ford or Bush, uh, not Kemp, uh, you know, not, not someone on the right. And so he believed you know, there was a significant number of folks who were in the, in the middle, as we think of it. And I think that you know, a lot of the country, I think fundamentally we're a center-right country, and that moderate Democrats and moderate Republicans tend to represent the basic opinion of the country. But for all sorts of reasons, you alluded to them, partisan media, I think social media. Remember, in the old days, meaning even 25 years ago, uh, if, you, if you're a congressman and you voted with the other side, you knew you were gonna pay for it, but it was gonna take a while for them to figure it out, right? The direct mail people would have to put together the mailing. You know, Richard Vigory would have to. Right. Yeah. Now it's also instantaneous. One of the scariest moments for me in, in, in recent years was when a United States Senator, whom I respect very much, pulled, we were talking about this very issue. Why, why don't, you know, 19, 19 out of 20 times you're gonna vote with your party. That, that's what it's supposed to be, right? Partisanship isn't bad. It's, it's, it's reflexive partisanship that's bad. We're supposed to disagree. It's the nature of the beast. 
But if you reflexively disagree, if I reflexively disagree with Ken because he stands up and says it because he's Ken, then I'm foreclosing the possibility of reason to be able to inform my decisions. If, I, if he stands up and I've listened to him and I think, no, he's just wrong, that's different. That's fine. But right now we're at a place where you just see the person standing up and that's it. But this senator, we were talking about this, this senator pulls out his phone and he has a, a, a Google alert, Twitter alert, every time his name was mentioned. So minute to minute, he's checking what the world is saying about him. You know, that's not what Plato meant by philosopher king, I don't think. <laughs> I could be wrong. Thank Give you. it up for John Meach. Thank you. John Meacham is a presidential historian, a writer for the New York Times, and a contributing editor at Time. He's working on a biography of James and Dolly Madison. John Dickerson is political director at CBS News and a contributor to Slate Magazine and its podcast, The Political Gab Fest. They spoke at the Aspen Ideas Festival in 2017. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Follow Aspen Ideas To Go year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Ideas Festival programming team is Kitty Boone, Killeen Bretman, Katie Cassetta, Libby Franklin, Brett Howley, Peter Kaplan, Jamie Miller, and me. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.